Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. Zone's non-stop sports talk continues with a look at Nashville's teams and at news around the nation from the lead writer of 1045thezone.com. This is the Big Six. The Big Six with Jason Martin, presented by Renters Warehouse. And here we go. Straight up, 6 o'clock by my watch, means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 1045 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. Lust to have you as a part of my audience. I'm Jason Martin. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartzone. Finishing up the week here. You heard me this morning with Jeff Schwartz finishing up a week on Outkick the Coverage. Incredibly blessed every time I get the opportunity to fill in on that show or any other show for that matter. And might as well say it now because I say it every night. I'm blessed beyond measure, all reasonable and otherwise. I hope you recognize that you are as well. Hope this finds you and yours doing exceedingly well in your life. If not, hope that that turns around. And my DMs are always wide open at Zone for a faith-based conversation. And if not me, I hope there's somebody in your life that you trust to have that conversation with. But I'll be glad to if you want to reach out to me. And I, we've had several, actually, come through this week. And hopefully I've been able to either support or say something that maybe just kind of got you walking down a pathway that you wanted to walk down. And so it's, I feel privileged that you would reach out to me. And that uh, really sometimes is more worthwhile than any reply to some kind of sports take that I might have. But let's talk about sports. Fake football started last night. And it started last night for the Tennessee Titans. I guess it technically started with the Hall of Fame game a week ago, but that was one game. There were 11 games last night. Titans-Eagles, Titans win 27-10. Don't care who wins. Marcus Mariota plays, doesn't play very well in his one series. He throws behind Adam Humphreys on a short route. And that's the thing. If you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that the biggest concern I have for Mariota really isn't his health. It's how inconsistent he is on the ones that should be gimmies. I don't like that he doesn't want to throw outside the numbers. I don't like that his short to intermediate passes just seem varied from throw to throw. I like him more down the field than I do eight yards. And so he throws behind Humphreys on one play. Humphreys makes four grabs for 24 yards. You've, you know, you can look at these stats and you can parse these stats. But the biggest thing is there's such a farce, there's such a let's create something where it's not as it relates to Marcus Mariota versus Ryan Tannehill. This is not a question. It's Mariota's team, but you have a better backup. The Miami Dolphins got a look at Ryan Tannehill and decided to pay some of his money and still let him go when they needed a quarterback. I mean, look who they've got. They went and got Josh Rosen, who I really like, but everybody's hugely down on him. And then Fitzpatrick, who did not look good last night in preseason action, certainly Rosen actually looked pretty solid. 
but that's going to be an awful football team, and they cut bait with Ryan Tannehill. Tannehill is a better backup than Blaine Gabbert, a much better backup. And because it's Mariota, and because of his propensity to get injured, you have to expect that Tannehill's going to get called into action at some point, even if it's just for a quarter. Like, you hope that Mariota's not going to get banged up, but the history would tell you there's going to be a couple of games where Tannehill might be called upon. And I think you should feel better, and if you want to look at the preseason as any kind of indicator at all, and I don't think that you really should, Tannehill did look pretty good. I mean, he was 12 of 16 for 130, two touchdowns, no interceptions. He looked like he was in pretty good command out there. I definitely would feel better if they're playing the Colts in the final week of the season last year if Tannehill's there and not Blaine Gabbard. And that's really what you want. You want a backup where the drop-off is not so significant that you have to almost change everything you do or at least change every bit of your own trust internally to try and get by. I remember when Mariota went down, when I woke up that day, to the news about Mariota not being able to play against the Colts, and I went on with Alex Marvez on Sirius XM, and he asked me about Mariota, and he asked me about Blaine Gabbard. And I said, look... Gabbert is not very good. And I'm not going to call Mariota injury prone. I'm definitely not going to call him soft. I think that's a derogatory term that's flat out erroneous as it applies to eight. But history will tell you that this guy will get banged up, that those injuries or those problems will coagulate together and become one bigger mess. And it's going to cost him some time. But Tannehill can throw. There are flashes of time when he's been healthy, when he's looked pretty good. If you look at it statistically, he and Mariota are awfully similar in a lot of different ways. I think Mariota is a better player than Ryan Tannehill. I think you do, too. I think just about everybody other than Mike Tannenbaum does. And Tannenbaum, let's just call this what it is. Tannehill was his guy in Miami, so of course he's going to back him. He's going to back him to the nth degree, even though that might have been a mistake to take him. Because I don't know how good... Tannehill never really particularly impressed me at Texas A&M. But I think he's actually been better in the pros when he's been healthy than many anticipated him to be. But he did not come to Nashville under the auspice that he was taking Mariota's job. So if you want to put that narrative out there, you're wrong. I want to credit the fans, not just of this radio station, but of this team. I did not see Tannehill's the guy last night on social media. There is no hot take, ladies and gentlemen, in sports quite like preseason hot take. I mean, unless you're being sarcastic or funny for effect. Slow your roll regardless of what you see in the preseason. The only things that you need to pay attention to in the preseason, you can pay attention to special teams and you can pay attention to what's happening situationally because that's really what the coaches want to see. The coaches want every situation that they could possibly face in an actual game to come up so that they can put different personnel in there and figure out who they can trust if that happens when these games count. Ultimately, that's what it is. It is practice. You ever play Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter 2, and instead of actually just jumping into the fights, you go to the practice and you learn all the moves, and that's when you keep hitting pause. Or back in the day for me, you print it out on the old dot matrix printer, and then you... Maybe if you have the time, you peel off the sides, you know, with the holes in it. 
and you've got all of the finishers and you've got all that stuff and you sit there and you practice against an opponent that doesn't fight back where you can just learn Liu Kang's bicycle kick or whatever it is. That's what this is. It's learning the finishers. It's figuring out who is out there that you can trust because ultimately that's what sports is. It's who can you trust. Tannehill, you trust more than Blaine Gabbert, so you probably feel better about this situation for the Titans. I know I do. I think the Titans have a good chance to finish second in the division. I don't like Houston's makeup. I don't like Houston's schedule. I don't like Houston's offensive line. I really like Indianapolis, provided Andrew Luck is healthy. You know what I think about Nick Foles. He's got the best Halloween costume in the NFL, that of a starting quarterback, when he's actually a backup. So I think the Titans, with some of the moves that they made, should be second in this division. In fact, I think it would be a very sad finish if they don't. And the quarterback is going to determine a lot of that, but having a backup that at least is not going to be off a cliff of a dropout is probably going to work, I would suggest. But then you look at some of the things that the Titans did have going well last night. The one move that I was totally bullish on from moment one was paying Adam Humphreys $38 million to come from Tampa Bay. Because Humphreys, I sat there and watched him catch a lot of footballs between the hash marks with no alligator arms, no fear. He was the perfect slot receiver. And that's something this team flat out has not had. They've had, well, I mean, they drafted Corey Davis, but he hasn't been a number one receiver to this point except in name only. And then you've had Taewon Taylor, who even though he came from my alma mater, Western Kentucky, Last night, he dropped a couple of balls, one that was bad, one that might not have necessarily been on him. But the jury is at best still out, and it doesn't seem to be favoring him right now. I don't know if the foreman is on his side either. Tajay Sharp at times looks great, and at other times doesn't necessarily look great. You're getting Delaney Walker back, but Humphreys is the slot guy you haven't been able to have. Kendall Wright couldn't stay healthy. There have just been a number of issues and this guy moves chains. He gets first downs. His DVOA ranking on Football Outsiders tells you all you need to know about how valuable a piece he can be. No, he's not going to be Randy Moss. He's not going to be Antonio Brown. But if he turns out to be a poor man's Wes Welker, that could be worth a couple of games. In your favor, if you're the Tennessee Titans in a passing league where Mariota needs a safety valve. The problem for Mariota is... Even if the safety valve is there and he's open five yards upfield, you actually have to find him. And throwing behind him like Mariota did in that first series last night, that's not the best way to get that job done. And so that's the one thing I saw Mariota do last night that I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. At this point, this is the question I've had about him since he got into the league is, why is it that the easy throws seem to feel so much more difficult to Mariota than the ones where he's able to actually wing it downfield. Because I need him to be able to throw. If he's going to be my quarterback, I need him to be able to throw consistently from 7 to 12 yards, and I have not seen that through Marcus's career. And now you've got a guy that's going to be open because the Tampa Bay fans that were tweeting me last night at J-Mart Zone saying, boy, you guys got a hell of a player. We really liked him. Everybody to a man talks about what great hands he's got, how he gets open, how he's a solid route runner, how he handles slants, all of these things. If he's open, you better find him. He's going to take pressure off Walker. He's going to take pressure off Davis. Assuming Henry's health or whoever it is that's running the football wearing the two-tone blue, he's going to take pressure off of those guys. But if Mariota's throwing behind him where 
If you had thrown that ball that he threw behind him in front of him, you could have had yards after the catch. But in that case, it was just moving the chains. And Humphreys was good enough to actually turn and convert his body and contort around to make a catch on an awful throw. But Mariota didn't look good last night. Good news is it was fake football and it doesn't matter. People that are placing onus in what they're seeing right now need to check themselves. Daniel Jones went 5-for-5 last night for the New York Giants. His average was over 13 yards per completion. He looked great. So what? We all know Eli's done. Assuming, look, if Daniel Jones pans out, nobody's going to pan to take the other version of pan. Nobody's going to go after Dave Gettleman for making this move. If you go take a risk on a quarterback and it pays off, nobody's going to bury you for it. They're going to say, all right, good job. Maybe Daniel Jones is going to be that guy. He was average at Duke. Usually you don't get better in the NFL from mediocre. I mean, Trubisky had one good year basically at North Carolina and became the second pick in the draft to the Bears. And I am not really seeing in Mitch Trubisky the second pick in the draft. However, Mariota was the second pick in the draft, and we're in the show-me season for him in terms of is he going to get franchised, is he going to get extended, is he going to get sent packing? Even with the Titans putting out that like three-part video, which is going to be really good about his story and all of that, I know some have pointed to that and said, well, you're not going to do that if you're going to cut a guy. Well, sure you are. He's still the quarterback this year. You're going to do everything you can. If you already knew he's not the guy, he wouldn't be there now. Like There'd be no point at this point. So they're putting out that video because they want to support their guy and they want you to care about him. They want you to like Marcus Mariota. They want him to be the guy. He's as likable as you can find in the NFL. Problem is, it doesn't matter how likable you are if you're winning middling amounts of games and dealing with injuries your entire career. So it wasn't a great start for him. I mean, he was, what, 4 of 8, 24 yards. Not great. But it doesn't matter because it's fake football. So I'm glad that I did not see the knee-jerk takes on Twitter last night of people clamoring for Tannehill. There were two places that I saw that argument made. One was pro football talk. That goes without saying. When they say things, you probably shouldn't be paying attention to them. If they're editorializing, they're putting out facts and stories, okay, because those are usually coming from other sources. But if it's their own opinions, that tends to be a real tricky trouble spot as it relates to PFT. And the other one is my favorite analyst on ESPN, Ryan Clark, who kind of threw out there that it could be Tannehill. And I was thinking to myself, come on, Ryan, you're smarter than this. Mike Tannenbaum, I know he, I know Mike Tannenbaum was actually on set with him this morning on TV, so maybe he's just kind of gotten into his head. The Dolphins didn't want Tannehill, and they desperately needed a quarterback. But they're going to go ahead and cut bait and move on. Maybe bottom out and hope to get Trevor Lawrence in two years, or maybe be that bad this year and try to get Tua or Justin Herbert or somebody for their future now. They've got a coach that might be a fall guy in Brian Flores that might be part of a rebuild that's going to be the scapegoat and then kicked out before they move on. All of those things are happening, but Tannehill's not part of that rebuild at all. They have cut bait with him. I don't know if they would have cut bait with Mariota by this point if these two things had been reversed, but I can tell you that Tannehill is a perfect backup in this situation, but I don't think in any respect he is a threat to that job. Neither do you, which just goes again to show the national media doesn't pay attention to the Titans close enough to be taken seriously when they start giving you takes on them. And that means Mariota, Tannehill, Derrick Henry, who they didn't want to credit on the game against Jacksonville, all of that stuff just plays into that same narrative that they're not paying attention to this team. 
because it just has not been relevant enough to move the needle for them. We'll be right back. Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. Zone. Welcome back to the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone, finishing up a week here on a Friday evening in the Music City. I would like to say finishing up my week. I guess I wouldn't like to say that. It's good that I'm busy. But at 1 a.m., I'll be in for Jonas Knox for four hours solo. So if you have not got to hear me on OutKick this week, if you've just been away from your radio and happen to be out late tonight, I'll be on for four hours talking preseason football, NBA, everything else that's going on, plus the Jason Martin Show on Fox Sports Radio Sunday morning. 3 to 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Like I say, I opened the show talking about being blessed beyond measure. Work is definitely part of that. Abby's definitely the biggest part by far of all of that, but there's a whole lot of good things happening in my life. Sometimes I look at and wonder just how much favor I can be shown at this point. It's definitely a good season in my life, to be sure. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to helping homeowners benefit from the rental boom by renting their homes the easy way. Renters Warehouse, you can't buy happiness, but you can rent it the Aaron Rodgers story with Matt LaFleur is something that does not surprise me at all and I think there are multiple ways that you can look at this so Aaron Rodgers comes out publicly and he talks about how these combined practices aren't things that he likes and he definitely does not like special teams and kick returns and things like that happening because of the danger and the one thing that's true of Aaron Rodgers no question is he's very intelligent but I think he's intelligent enough to know that what he is doing is in effect undermining his own new head coach and this is something that I first guessed Matt LaFleur who has very little experience at all in play calling I mean he was here last year and it was inauspicious for the majority of that time but he's a great interviewer ends up being the first hire in this coaching cycle in the NFL. And I didn't understand it then, but I don't want to like crush the guy. I don't know. Like Maybe Matt LaFleur is going to turn out to be just the greatest thing since sliced bread. I don't think so, but I don't know. I know that Aaron Rodgers needed somebody new, and Mike McCarthy needed to get out of that situation. That was before we all read that Bleacher Report article that just showed what a discombobulated dumpster fire the Packers organization had become from the top down basically from the minute Aaron Rodgers was drafted later than he thought he should have been but Aaron Rodgers anytime he comes out publicly and says something critical about what's happening it's undermining authority in a coach that does not have a whole lot of equity built up and that to me is a red flag already for the Green Bay Packers because LaFleur is already being undermined. I heard, look, I already heard this phrased last night as such. Remember when LeBron James just started saying kind of passive, critical things that reflected semi-negatively on David Blatt? If you remember that name, now he's coaching overseas, but David Blatt, oh, he's going to come in and change the fortunes and the coaching staff and this and that ended up not making it very long at all. That's kind of what this feels like because... One of the guys that you could classify as a LeBron James type in the NFL is clearly Aaron Rodgers. And Rodgers, who is usually outspoken and has no problem saying things, sometimes he's saying relax, but often he is saying things that 
or I'm better than everybody on my team and they need to come up to my level. And it just comes across arrogantly. He and Roethlisberger are reminiscent of one another to me, not necessarily in their playing styles, even though both of them have won Super Bowls and are certainly going to be Hall of Famers, but just in the way that they conduct themselves. But to say this, if he goes to Matt LaFleur and he has this argument, he talks in the building about it, that's one thing. But of course it comes out because that's more the way Aaron Rodgers operates. This is, who was it that said this yesterday? It may have been Tony Kornheiser that said this yesterday. He said this is basically Aaron Rodgers going to the cops and spilling the beans. And it just feels like this Matt LaFleur marriage with Aaron Rodgers is already off to a bad start. First you had the audibles, and then you had a lot of that first segment I talked about trust. What trust does Aaron Rodgers have in Matt LaFleur? What trust does Aaron Rodgers have in the Packers organization? I still don't understand how he wasn't involved in that coaching hire at all. If the whole problem with McCarthy was his relationship with the quarterback, then wouldn't you think that the quarterback should be deeply involved in who the successor is going to be? Because the chemistry or lack thereof basically that resulted in an explosion in the lab instead of potential Super Bowls. I mean, they got the one, but with Aaron Rodgers' talent, you assume they would have had more than that. They didn't necessarily build particularly well around him. The defense this year should be better, but it has struggled over the past couple of seasons. The offensive line has been a problem at times. They have not found a consistent running game, and when they have had talented guys, they've put them in platoons, and they've kind of fallen off a cliff. And how do we know that? Because if you drafted a Packers running back in fantasy last year, you probably lost. Because whether it was Jones or Montgomery or whatever, you never knew from week to week who was going to get the most carries. And usually the guy you thought should, and the guy most experts thought should, didn't. So it hasn't been good. But Matt LaFleur coming in because he interviewed well or because he wowed the organization but didn't have any kind of real contact with Aaron Rodgers during that process, that doesn't make any sense. If Aaron Rodgers is not happy, they're not going to do very well. If he doesn't feel comfortable, they're not going to do very well. And that doesn't that's not like something I should be paid to say because it's obvious. The most important position in all of professional sports in America that guy should have some level of comfort with, with the organizational structure that is around him. Which is why I, I look at Arizona last night, and Kyler Murray goes 6-for-7 and looks pretty good in Kingsbury's offense, and that's exactly what I told you. I also told you, do not fall prey to bandwagon syndrome. Don't all of a sudden believe that because what you're seeing right now, and I don't even just mean in the preseason, I mean in the first month of the regular season when they're probably cooking and scoring some points, Kyler Murray is a talented player. I don't think the Kingsbury thing's going to work. I don't think he has any equity either. But here you have a coach and a quarterback on the same page. Kyler Murray ran that offense in college, and now he's in the NFL running that exact same offense. That is incredibly rare. It's also an offense that doesn't work in the NFL or has not historically worked. Could it work this time? Could this be the one that changes it? It could be. But Kingsbury immediately going straight to head coach after being fired from the one college job that he could get at his own alma mater where he was worse than four or five coaches in a row that had preceded him over about a 35-year span who could not win with Patrick Mahomes as his quarterback – 
and he had all sorts of other talented guys around there running that offense. He could score points, but his defense was bad. We'll see what they're able to do. You've got Fitzgerald, and you've got Kyler Murray, and you've got Johnson, but there's still a lot of positions lacking there. And when we get to Week 10 or 11, we don't know what it's going to look like, but we do know that quarterback and coach are going to get along because the reason they got rid of Josh Rosen, who they had gone up to take in the draft last year in the first round, is because Kingsbury wanted to come in and run the offense that he believed Kyler Murray was best equipped to run. That's not necessarily the case in Green Bay. But when you look at Aaron Rodgers publicly criticizing and questioning the method and modes of practices, the one thing that needs to be pointed out here is that Aaron Rodgers is right. It is foolish to have kick returns and punt returns like that. It is foolish. I don't know about the combined practice thing. I don't really care about that. Like, you know, it's the Patriots this year for the Titans. We saw, I don't know if you saw the update or not, but there was a scuffle between the Rams and the Raiders. And, of course, that'll be on Hard Knocks on Tuesday night. These scuffles happen. There have been multiple scuffles in Broncos practices this week. You see those stories pop up. It's not, And it, it happens internally between the one team and then certainly... These combined practices sometimes get out of hand. I don't think that you need the combined practices. I also don't think that there's anything really harmful about them either, if that's what they want to do. I guess there's some secret you wouldn't want to let out, but it's not like you're showing anything to these teams. And a lot of times they're not teams you're going to see in the regular season anyway. So unless it's something where you're really trying to make sure that everything's under wraps before the playoffs happen in four and a half months, it's not really that big of a deal. And ultimately, I just don't think you're showing anything at all. Just like you're just showing basic offense last night. Like any nobody's running wrinkles and things of that nature. They're running the most basic stuff that they've got, and just trying to see, you know, what's there. Jeff Schwartz, who's been with me all week on Outkick the Coverage, said, "Look, preseason, and he's he took part in eight of them. Basically, they don't even have the whole offense installed yet." Not for the new guys, not even for the veterans. Like, there are still things that they are putting together. So it's the most basic, just in-the-box offense that you can find for all of these teams. It's one of the reasons why it becomes so dry watching preseason football, even for those of us that just can't get enough pigskin and will sit down and try. Like, last night I'm sitting there. I don't know if you're like me. And I start watching Titans-Eagles, and I'm flipping between that and the Giants and the Jets. And about seven or eight minutes in, I'm just like, what am I doing here? Like, I, I will care about this in a month. There are some that may have sat down and taken notes on every single play last night in Titans-Eagles. I'm just not that guy. Like, I will talk a ton of Titans during a regular season, but I'm not going to sit here and analyze a box score very long as it relates to a preseason game. I'm just not. I told you the few things that mattered to me last night. Mariota didn't look good in the first series. But that doesn't necessarily raise the needle. It's just important enough to mention. Adam Humphreys looked good. I was happy to see that. I thought he his punt return situation was very good. I thought Taewon Taylor did not look good. Dory Jackson didn't have a great night. Malcolm Butler got beat by the first guy that tried to run the field on a Sudfeld throw, even though it wasn't caught. A rookie almost beat Malcolm Butler on that play. Like you can, like I said, just right there. You can parse all this stuff if you want. It's just not indicative of anything. I think it's a waste of time. It's not an experiment that's going to amount to anything. Ultimately, what you're watching in the preseason is five to seven spots that haven't been claimed that are up for grabs. 
some guys you don't want to see out there almost at all because of the risk of injury. We saw that with Curse with the Lions. His season is over because he got rolled up on last night in that Patriots-Lions game. And then just overreactions to everything because it is the season. I said this earlier in the week. 2H, four-letter words. It's a season of hype, and it's a season of hope. It's okay just to sit back and watch this stuff as long as you don't actually place any onus that what you're seeing is going to reflect what's going to happen when these games matter. We'll be right back. Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. So. Welcome back. Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Glad to have you with us. Debo Swinney has said a couple of interesting things this week. But the one that's gotten the most traction, I would say, and we can talk about both of them here in this segment, but is that Kelly Bryant is not going to get a ring, a championship ring. And there are mixed opinions. He told this to Chris Lowe, and he was answering a question. He didn't just bring this stuff out of nowhere. And so he tells Lowe, he wasn't on the team. you got to be on the team to get a ring. I love Kelly and appreciate what he did for us, but he decided to move on. So Kelly Bryant started the first four games, then was demoted because Trevor Lawrence, after Georgia Tech, it was very obvious Trevor Lawrence was the answer. I saw Anna Hickey, who I met a couple of years ago down at the national championship game. She does a great job covering Clemson for 24-7. She said, yeah, it took until Georgia Tech for everybody to realize just what a separation there was between Lawrence and Bryant as a quarterback. So now he's in Missouri as Kelly Bryant, and they should be better this year with him. But, and Bryant left okay, and, you know, they still had the red shirt and all of that stuff, but Bryant left. And at the time, he said it was a slap in the face when he was demoted. It wasn't a slap in the face. It was, this dude's better than you. And even though I didn't think Kelly Bryant handled it terribly, he didn't handle it quite as well as Jalen Hurts did at Alabama. But Bryant not getting a ring has raised the ire of some that say it's petty of Dabo not to just give him one. I guess you could give him one. He was part of that team early. He wasn't part of those last two games. He wasn't part of the ACC championship. He wasn't part of the stretch run. I just don't think that this raises to the level of mattering all that much. Dabo also said he hadn't spoken with Kelly Bryant since he left Clemson, but he wants to down the line. Just hasn't had a chance yet. And so basically, I mean, Kelly Bryant didn't play. It was him and Trevor Lawrence splitting reps, even in those first four games. And so Kelly Bryant had a really good game against Texas A&M. But then Lawrence went nuts at Georgia Tech and threw four touchdowns. And then when they told Kelly Bryant this, Dabo said, hey, we're going to go with Trevor. That was what it was. And so this is what Dabo said. It was close coming out of camp, and I was like, all right, we got to take it to the games and see how it plays out. And after that Georgia Tech game, it was obvious Trevor had to have an opportunity to be the guy. I didn't anticipate Kelly leaving. I thought Kelly would stay and keep playing and compete, but he chose to move on. Trevor took it and ran with it and got better and better. I just I can understand why you wouldn't give Kelly Bryant a championship ring. If you wanted to give him one, that's fine. I don't necessarily think it's a participation ribbon or a participation trophy kind of situation here. Kelly Bryant did play for the team. I probably would give him a ring, but I also think that clutching your pearls over this is a waste of time. It is understandable 
that a guy who quit the team, who left the team, who didn't stick it out like Jalen Hurts did all year, like if Jalen Hurts, I mean, Jalen Hurts would have gotten a championship ring. But Kelly Bryant didn't stick around for the championship. He didn't stick around for the college football playoff. He didn't stick around for the back half of the season, basically. He got out of there. He was unhappy. He was disappointed. It was a slap in the face. That's his direct quote. It was a hit to his pride. So he left. And that's fine. And look, I get it. I understand that. Kelly Bryant was the starter the year before, and they made it to the semifinals. And they got boat raced and trucked by Alabama in that game. But he made the decision that he had to make, but he left that team. So then he gives up the right to necessarily get a championship ring. I don't think anybody would be up in arms if he got one. But being up in arms because he didn't is futile. And the other thing that Dabo talked about was, apparently there are some Alabama apologists out there who are suggesting that the reason Clemson won the national championship 44-16 to in January is because they were so well-rested because they didn't face any challenges during a regular season. That they played in a weak conference compared to the SEC. This is a bad argument. It's not one that needs to be made. And Dabo fought back against it and said, yeah, you know, that murders row that you played in the SEC, you won those games by an average of 33 points. I don't think that it was some kind of stressful struggle. The bigger problem for that argument, not for Dabo's, but the argument he was going after, is that there was like a month between the SEC title game and the national title. Like, I mean, by that point, a lot of this gets reset, right? Like, I mean, Tua got banged up during a regular season, but he was getting hit in every game, and he just... That worries me about his pro career. I have a feeling he's going to be injury-prone, and I'm going to go ahead and use the term this time. I don't think he's going to be able to hold up in the NFL. I I don't know that I would not draft him, but if he struggles to stay on the field on the pro level, it's not going to surprise me in the least. Alabama, I do think the SEC is a better conference than the ACC by a pretty substantial margin, as a matter of fact. This year, Clemson's going to be favored by three touchdowns in every game. They're going to face just one game that has a preseason ranking at all, one team that has a preseason ranking at all. It's not It's not a conference that has other teams that threaten you. I mean, you have a couple of other okay teams, but it's Clemson and it's everybody else. If you want to point to an example, when Florida State first joined the ACC, they just absolutely crushed everybody. Then they went to Scott Stadium in Charlottesville one Thursday night and lost to Virginia. I remember that game like it was yesterday. And then I remember being at NC State as a student, and Florida State came and played at Carter-Finley, and North Carolina State beat them, and it was one of the biggest parties that I've seen that university ever throw. Certainly in my time there, it was the biggest party ever. A lot of people don't remember that weekend at all because Hillsborough Street just got completely unloaded of every beverage that it would ever hope to have for the next month, and people just went nuts because nobody expected that to happen. Nobody did. I mean, it was more likely that State was going to go beat Carolina at the Dean Dome or go to Duke and win at Cameron than it was beating Bobby Bowden in Florida State. That's what Clemson is at this point. Like, what was the second-best team in the ACC last year? Syracuse? I mean, are you kidding? I mean, great job. But a lot of these perennial powers are the the teams that used to be pretty good in the ACC aren't anymore. State is kind of average. Carolina's below average most of the time. Georgia Tech is not what Georgia Tech once was. Florida State's definitely not what it used to be. I don't know how long Taggart is going to survive there if they have another year 
like they did last year. Virginia at one point was a pretty solid program, but it's been a while since that's been the case. Wake is not good. Duke has Cutcliffe, so they'll be better than they should be based on the talent that they have. But no Daniel Jones anymore. He's the guy that's going 5-for-5 five five for the Giants. I mean, it goes down the list. There's just not a lot of great teams in the ACC. Even the new ones that have been added have fallen off. I mean, Pitt's not that great. Louisville's not that great. I mean, what are you pointing to here? So it's a bad argument. I actually think if you're trying to, like Dabo could have stopped short of talking about defending the ACC. You don't need to full throat defend the ACC. Just talk about Clemson being a brand, and they're one of the two best programs in the country, maybe number one at this stage because they've beaten Alabama in two straight NCAA championship games in two straight college football playoff finals with Deshaun Watson and with Trevor Lawrence this year. And this one even certainly much more impressive than what Watson did, even though Watson was great in that game. That game came down to the last play. This one this year did not. All you have to do is just talk about your program. You don't have to defend the rest of the conference, especially not against the SEC, because it's a bad argument you're going to lose. There were other top 10 ranked teams last year. Like Dabo's talking about how they didn't really run into anybody good until they played Georgia in the SEC title game. That's ridiculous. Like, I thought LSU was a little overrated, but LSU was better than what Clemson was seeing during the regular season. And remember Clemson and that Syracuse game, you almost lost Trevor Lawrence for the season in that thing. So slow your roll just a little bit. But I do like this. If we're about to get round five of Clemson, Alabama, which some people are going to talk about that being fatigue. I'm not, because I think it's. I think you want to see the best against the best. I like that Dabo's talking a little. I like that there's a bit of a rivalry here, and there's a little bit more spice to it. I still think Dabo's a good guy. I also think he's a pretty matter-of-fact guy. And if he and Saban might jab a little bit back and forth, I think that's all the better. If the players have a couple of things to say, that's going to make it more interesting when we inevitably get to that game which still looks like exactly what we're headed for. We'll be right back. This is The Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. Final segment of the program here on 104.5 The Zone, The Big Six. A reminder, I'll be in for Jonas Knox, so you hear me for four hours here in about seven hours. Starting at 1 a.m., you'll hear me for four hours and then you'll hear the jason martin show from two to five sunday plus squared circle radio our SummerSlam preview edition with brandon hagney and david reed so still a lot of me to come we're brought to you by renters warehouse they're dedicated to putting homeowners on the path to financial freedom through rent estate renting your home without having to do the hard stuff renters warehouse the rent estate company so i've seen a lot of ballsy business practices in my day but this movie pass story is phenomenal I'm just going to read this from Variety. MoviePass, the struggling movie subscription service, has been accused, listen to this, of changing user passwords in order to prevent heavy users from logging in. Business Insider reported that CEO Mitch Lowe ordered employees to change the passwords of users without their knowledge last year as the company temporarily ran out of funds in July. The report, citing former employees, also said the lack of funds led to Lowe making Mission Impossible Fallout unavailable on MoviePass that month and ordering that half of subscribers be frozen out during the July 27th through 29th opening weekend. They did not respond to a request for comment. So I had MoviePass. 
and I've actually talked about it on this show before, how ridiculous it was and how it was one of the dumbest ideas I've ever seen because how on earth was that going to make money? The idea was people were going to buy concessions and that was going to help them profit. And that didn't work at all. So you could not log in if you were a heavy user. And I remember a couple of times I tried to log in and couldn't. I finally gave up the ghost. I got about three good months out of movie pass and then the stories just kept on rolling. Remember the fire festival and what a complete disaster that was? There's going to be a Netflix documentary. I saw Alex Daugherty tweet that first this morning, so I'm going to make sure I credit him for that comment, but he's right. If you can do two fire documentaries, which, look, you should have because it was unbelievable, you can definitely do a movie pass documentary if these guys are not going to jail. I don't know if it's illegal what they were doing, but it was definitely unethical. Like, I remember when it started to go bad and I started to sense, oh, okay, I was right about this. I'm glad I went ahead and jumped in and got a couple of months, was able to see some movies. I mean, Movie Pass, if you don't know, you paid whatever it was a month. I paid 100 for a year. And you could see one movie a day, every day, all year for free. At any theater that took Movie Pass, which at the time was basically all of them. I mean, I even used it at the Bell Court for crying out loud. And then all of a sudden it was, hey, you can see it during these times, or if you want to use other screens, then we can't do that. And then it was, you can see these two movies whenever you want. And one of them is Gotti with John Travolta, because MoviePass actually has ownership stake in that film. And it was one of the worst-reviewed films of the decade, maybe of the century. And I think like seven people saw it, and all of them were probably MoviePass people who wished they had just used that two hours to do anything else, including, I don't know, organize their tennis shoes in a closet. So movie pass, all of a sudden you couldn't see anything you actually wanted to see. If it was a movie that there was even the potential that you were mildly interested in, it was frozen out. But there were several times that I tried to just log into movie pass to see if I could sign up for a screening or sign up for one of the showings. And I couldn't get in. I didn't understand why. Password the thing was down it had crashed it crashed because they were losing so much money they had to find a way to stop people from taking advantage of the service now you've seen look amc's got their a-list i've got it it works regal has their own but they have stuff that's in-house where all they do is they get people in the door and then all the money on concessions is just the money in the door they have found a way to make that work i don't know exactly how much they're profiting but inside of one company i can see that having at least some validity Movie pass, and I've got to say, like I said, you're changing the passwords of people that have paid for your service to keep them from using it so that you can preserve money that you did not have to begin with. You know, there's always that deal where if you don't have the money, don't buy it. And I don't mean like cash. I mean, this is a problem with credit cards. If you don't have the money, don't put it on a credit card. I mean, I, I'm not Dave Ramsey. But I went like $5,000 in debt when I was 22 because I was a fool and had a credit card. thought, oh, yeah, I can pay for these for this TV or whatever else with a job and all this. And then I didn't understand interest rates. And I was dumb. A lot of people my age are. I was blessed enough to have parents to help me bail out of it. And I've learned since then. And I don't really possess a credit card as a result of that. But this is the deal with MoviePass. MoviePass didn't have the money to do what they did. And when they looked at their own business plan, they could not have possibly crunched the numbers and felt like this was going to profit or succeed in any way. So they kept this thing alive. And to stay solvent, they had, I think it was a $2 billion cash infusion or a loan that they took out, that that's how far in the red that they were. 
and they wanted to continue to stay alive, so they sent all these emails to people like me and all the others that were subscribers of MoviePass, and there were a lot of them, of course, because the deal's absurd in terms of the value for a consumer. And they would say, oh, MoviePass is fine. It's solving. Everything's good. Everything you're reading is not true. We're just changing a couple of things around to make it even better for you. Meanwhile, they're changing passwords to make sure people can't use it. And the amazing thing about that is, at some point, just give up the ghost, right? Like, just admit that that thing's not working and it's not going to work and say, look, we had a good thought, but we didn't think it through all the way. We need to retool, so we got to shut this thing down right now. But they, I guess they didn't want to hand back money to people that they didn't have because they were already so far in the red. You want to talk about a, a disaster? I just talked for six minutes about this. I'm telling you, documentaries are coming. If not, then I'm going to make one because it will make money, whereas MoviePass did not. We'll see you next week. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless, and good night.